0: Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's just released an in-depth analysis of the nation's failures in response to the pandemic, uncontrolled spread, why COVID-19 crushed us, and how we can defeat the next pandemic. He examines the inherent weaknesses in the CDC's ability to respond to a crisis of this magnitude, the need for more widely deployed at-home testing, better surveillance diagnostics, and the promising discoveries in vaccines and therapeutics coming down the pike. Loy Robertson also checks in. Managing editor of factcheck.org looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts, and we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can ask Alexa to play the program. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Scott Gottlieb here on Conversations on Healthcare.
1: We're speaking today with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, physician and 23rd commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration from 2017 to 2019. Dr. Gottlieb is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He also serves on the board of Pfizer, which produced the first approved vaccine for COVID-19.
2: Dr. Gottlieb is the author of Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic, which just debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. He's also a medical contributor to CNBC. Dr. Gottlieb, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Thanks for having me here today. Dr.
1: Gottlieb, your book, uh, Uncontrolled Spread, congratulations, debuted uh, a week ago, and we're marking, at the same time, 700,000 American deaths from COVID-19. And we're still being crushed by this virus, but analysts are predicting the pandemic phase will end next year, shifting from a pandemic to an endemic. And there was some promising news this last week on a new oral therapeutic produced by Merck that reduces illness and hospitalizations by 50% in infected people. You're you're calling this a new development, a a game changer. Tell us more about the drug and your thoughts on why America might not be able to take full advantage of the drug because we're simply not buying enough doses.
3: Yeah, look, this is a orally available drug from Merck. it's probably the most profound treatment effect that I've seen from a from a pill in the treatment of any respiratory pathogen, mm-hmm. um, 50% reduction in the risk of hospitalization and death. And this was a population of patients that it was tested in who um, had risk factors for COVID. They had one or more risk factors for COVID. And they were also uh, symptomatic at the time that the drug was administered, so they had to be within five days of the onset of symptoms. And so they had advanced disease. They had already progressed in the course of the illness, many of these patients. And so it was a high risk population, yet you still saw a very profound treatment effect. You know, the problem is that we we're just not going to have enough of it. Merck said that they'll be able to make 10 million doses between now and the end of the year. But the U.S. has procured so far only 1.7 million doses, um, and they have an option on some additional doses, but not a lot. We do know that some portion and maybe some good portion of that 10 million has been pledged outside the U.S. So to give you sort of a basis of comparison, 1.7 million doses might have been enough to cover us for a month of the Delta wave um, if this drug was sort of approved for the targeted population. If it's approved more broadly, then it wouldn't have even covered a month of the Delta wave, probably would have covered three weeks of the Delta wave. And to give you another basis of comparison, we've stockpiled somewhere between 50 to 80 million doses of um, flu medicines in preparation for a feared pandemic flu. So we procured 1.7 million doses of this coronavirus drug in the setting of a raging coronavirus pandemic. And we've stockpiled upwards of 80 million doses of a flu drug for, you know, a flu pandemic that we fear but hasn't arrived yet. And so... There's sort of a, a mismatch between, you know, what we what we need in the setting of this pandemic and what we ultimately procured. There's probably things we could have done much earlier to ramp up manufacturing of the, this drug to have more available now. But it's too late at this point. There's not much you're going to be able to do in the near term. Um, and it just it sort of underscores the lack of preparation. This is another point I get back to in the book, not having the reserve capacity to scale the production of some of the therapeutics and countermeasures that you're going to need in a setting pandemic. We just don't have available capacity in this country that's ready to go, that's being kept as sort of a hot base of preparedness.
2: But Dr. Gottlieb, in your book, Uncontrolled Spread, you note that America was failed by not only some bad political decisions, but also an ill-prepared public health infrastructure that you described as the fog of viral war. We know there were missteps along the pandemic's trajectory and, and particularly you call out some at CDC, which I think we've all long considered the gold standard for public health, but you point to issues in the inherent culture at CDC that contributed to this and that it just wasn't structurally designed for rapid response to a large scale crisis. Share some of that analysis with us.
3: Yeah, hey, look, I, the CDC is the gold standard for public health. There's no question about that, but there is a difference between the CDC's sort of normal function and being able to respond to a public health crisis of this magnitude, having the logistical capacity and the ability to gather and do real-time analytical work to inform policy decisions that need to be made in the moment. Um, CDC is sort of a deeply analytical organization, high science organization, accustomed to doing um, very exquisite scientific analyses to try to be the definitive word on a public health question, not the first word on a public health question. In the setting of a crisis like this, you know, when you need to have a capacity to mount a very large coordinated logistical response, for example, being able to develop and deploy massive uh, screening, massive testing that was required early on in the pandemic, or you need the ability to gather real-time data and do very rapid analysis to inform decisions like, you know, what are the modes of transmission, what are the geographic and social compartments in society where the virus is spreading, how do we take steps to reduce transmission should we stand three feet apart or six feet apart or 10 feet apart what's the right distancing you know how effective a mask is going to be answering those critical questions we really didn't have an organization capable of doing that uh, in sort of the real-time fashion that was required for this crisis CDC just didn't have the resources the culture um, the aptitude to do that and it's not an argument for sort of building a new organization building a new agency I think what we need to do going forward and thinking about this is how do we build those those capabilities into CDC. I think there was a sort of a presumption that mm-hmm. CDC had this ball and, and they they were able to discharge this mission. It just was never going to be the case. And policymakers were slow to realize that.
2: Well, Dr. Gottlieb, the uh, the subtitle for another uh, book on this might be what we would have done and when we would have done it if we'd only known and, and really thought things through. And you talk about, about in your book, the uh, CDC first attempt at a COVID tests failing and having to go back to square one with what that cost in terms of time and lives. And uh, we recently had Harvard's uh, Dr. Michael uh, Minna on the show, and and he says if we'd simply focused on providing all Americans with simple at-home rapid tests, we could have gotten out in front of the pandemic much earlier, and instead we focused on the, the more complex PCR tests. Is that, is that your conclusion as well that, and, and we say this as an organization that put enormous effort into doing mass testing clinics with PCR, should we really have been focused on the rapid tests right from the start? Would that have made an appreciable difference?
3: Yeah, we needed an all of the above approach right from the outset. And I talk a lot about the testing failures in the book and and, and get into it in a lot of detail why we didn't have tests that we could deploy more widely. But um, at some point in January, someone needed to recognize that this could become a global pandemic, and we needed to get testing ramped up, not just um, the diagnostic test kits that can run on the complex PCR machines that are inside labs, but also the point-of-care tests, because there's a long lead time to actually developing those tests. And so we didn't get started on that until much later, and that's why we, don't, we didn't have those rapid point-of-care tests and ho- at-home tests like the Bi-Next Now or the Lucera test until much later in the course of this pandemic. So yeah, we didn't didn't have a a good strategy about how to scale and deploy testing in this country in the setting of a pandemic. If you go back and look at the pandemic plans that have been done, most of them had been focused on flu. And Mm -hmm. um, the pandemic preparedness, the tabletop exercises that we did, and I was part of some of those when I was in the federal government, never really envisioned diagnostic testing being an essential part of pandemic response, because if you're dealing with a flu, the incu- First of all, the incubation period for flu is short, you know, about three days. And second of all, you're not contagious until you're symptomatic. So testing isn't as essential a component to trying to identify asymptomatic spread and asymptomatic carriers because number one, asymptomatic people aren't going to go on to spread the virus in an appreciable amount, and two, by the time you um, you become contagious, you've it's a short incubation period, so you, you haven't been in contact with as many people. So doing the testing and the tracing. Um, isn't as essential of a component of actually preventing the pandemic, the progression of the pandemic. And three, the installed base of flu tests that are available in every doctor's office would be sufficient because if you had a pandemic with an influenza A or an influenza B, doctors in their offices have tests that could differentiate influenza A from influenza B. And if that's the prevailing strain, if yeah. pandemic strain is influenza B and you can diagnose them with influenza B, you know they have the pandemic strain. So we never really planned for, being able to develop and mass deploy novel diagnostic tests in a setting of a pandemic, because we always planned for flu, and in flu we the testing wouldn't be as essential, and we'd have an installed base of testing that we could use. So, you know, that was part of the uh, the real challenge early on is no one thought about this, no one thought of getting the diagnostic test kit makers in the game early enough, and we we've never had enough testing, and even now we still don't have enough of these uh, at home tests that could be highly effective at controlling. Um, the spread of the virus, and the ones that are available are expensive, and many people are priced out of it. We haven't adequately subsidized it for people who are priced out of this market.
1: We're speaking today with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner and author of Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. Dr. Gottlieb, as you say so eloquently in, in the book, the pandemic has shown that we need to reimagine the role at CDC. and You suggest that we amp up the intelligence capacity of the agency more in line with uh, what the NSA does, Uh, but that will require an act of Congress. President Biden's infrastructure bill allocated additional resources to improve the capacity of the CDC, but the question is uh, have they allocated enough and how should that money be deployed if approved uh, to make the CDC more responsive in a future crisis?
3: Yeah, well, the the argument in the book is that um, we can't rely just on public health conventions to alert us to outbreaks in uh, would-be hotspots. We've long relied on the international health regulations, which is a binding set of commitments that countries make in the context of um, the work they do under the World Health Assembly as part of the World Health Organization. And countries sort of voluntarily agree to surface information if they're host to an outbreak of a novel disease. That hasn't worked. I mean, we've seen time and time again Countries haven't fulfilled their obligations under the IHR, the International Health Regulations, including the Chinese government haven't fulfilled their obligations. Not just in the setting of SARS-CoV-2, but also in the setting of SARS-1. We strengthened the IHR after SARS-1 on the hopes that if we strengthened it, it would be more binding. And the Chinese government still flouted the commitments that they made under under those regulations. They still haven't shared the source strains of the virus. And so my argument is we can't rely on just public health institutions and public health conventions alone. We're going to have to get our intelligence services more engaged in monitoring these threats. There's actually been legislation introduced to do just that um, by Representative Schiff. So it looks like we're moving in this direction of getting our national security tools more engaged in a global public health mission. As far as resources, there's a lot of resources right now being allocated and there's more being contemplated. The Biden administration put out a sort of template for what they think a future pandemic preparedness proposal should look like. And it includes an enormous uh, amount of money in it. So I think the money is going to be there. The question is how to program it and also how to give very specific um, guidance to CDC in terms of how CDC needs to reform itself. In the past, Congress has written legislation directing CDC to do certain things, and the agency has simply ignored um, the legislation. I mean, the the one that's most apparent I talk about in the book is Congress sort of obligated cdc to build out a new infrastructure for data collection in the country and cdc never implemented it Mm -hmm. uh the gao did a report and 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 came to the same conclusion that the the cdc the agency just failed to uh act on um the congress's mandate so congress is going to need to come it's going to have to come in and very specifically reprogram that organization to create these capacities they did it with fda so when i was at fda you know, Congress was very specific and granular in directing the FDA to reform itself in certain ways. I think ultimately had a very positive impact on the agency, driving change in the agency. And I think they're going to have to do it in CDC. The challenge is there's not that many people in Congress who really understand the CDC well. I mean, there was a lot of, there was a group of, you know, Congress people, senators, um, Congress people who understood FDA well enough to write very specific legislation. Um, CDC has been a little bit more of a black box, and that's why Congress has sort of allocated money to CDC but left a lot of discretion to the agency how how it implemented uh, reforms. And I, I don't think we can afford that luxury anymore. I think we have to have sort of a, um, you know, put together a commission or some group that's going to write very specific uh, legislation prescribing a very specific set of reforms to get the agency to have the capacity to deal with a crisis like this in the future.
2: Well, Dr. Gopley, thank you for that and uh, your early comments and your response about uh, what we did and didn't know coming out of China back in the late fall, early winter. At the beginning of the pandemic, it's certainly a case of if only we'd known. But here we are with vaccination as our our best strategy to stop uh, this relentless progression of infection uh, and death. And we have made progress, but we still see resistance in different places around the country, in the South and the Midwest, uh, and then uh, recently just really tragic news coming out of Alaska. You've uh, looked at the issue of federal vaccination mandates, which the president is attempting in, in certain sectors, and said probably not the answer, probably further politicizes vaccine uptake. But it does seem like we're seeing some movement, maybe uh, some positive impact from the mandates. Is is that still your thought, or are you swayed by some of the recent news showing some progress where there are mandates?
3: Well, look, I think certain mandates make make a lot of sense, and I've been very clear on this. I think uh, mandating vaccination among healthcare workers makes a lot of sense. I think the federal government certainly, within. Um, it's the scope of its authority to mandate vaccination among the federal workforce. It's a matter of, you know, readiness of the federal workforce, the Department of Defense. I think we should be prescribing, um, you know, greater mandates in the Medicare program using the star rating system. We could be requiring Medicare plans to have to vaccinate mm -hmm. a certain high percentage of their populations for for COVID as well. We haven't done that yet. I think we should, because that's a very vulnerable population, Um, you know, but I think that the, the The issue of mandating vaccination among private businesses and small businesses versus trying to use incentives to drive that, I think we need to look at that carefully. What what I haven't seen is the um, policymakers in the federal government step forward and say, this is what we need to achieve in terms of vaccination rates. And these are the different policies that are going to get us there. And this is how much much incremental vaccination we think we're going to achieve with these uh, different policies. So we can actually do a careful weighing um, from a public policy standpoint, of what we need to achieve and what are the best ways to get there. Right now, it seems very open-ended. It seems to be the policy is more, get more people vaccinated. We don't really know what the upper bound is that is achievable, let alone you know sufficient from a public health standpoint in terms of providing a proper wall of immunity. And in let's do everything and anything we can and not really understand which policies are going to achieve more vaccination versus which policies are gonna be more divisive, create more acrimony, create more division around vaccination, not necessarily achieve a lot of vaccination. So it doesn't feel very deliberate to me. It doesn't feel like we're, have a very clear sense of where we wanna get and what are the tools for getting there. And that's that's where I think we need to be much more careful in terms of policymaking. We ought to understand what the goal is. We ought to understand what the different measures are that could get us there. And you know what the trade-offs from those different approaches are. There's been no discussion of that. So at the end of the day, what is the limiting principle here? I mean, there's, there's obviously an end to what you can do to try to drive more vaccination. But if you don't prescribe sort of a, a goal and, and a different set of measures and, and how you think that those different measures are going to achieve the outcome, it doesn't, there's not a clear limiting principle to what, what, you, um, what you are able to do or willing to do. And we should policy um, should be much more deliberate than it feels right now.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think you say that uh, data should drive some of that policy. We've got to line up that data and make sure that the policymakers are aligned with it. You know, I talk, you talked earlier about the FDA thinking that it, it really didn't need a review. Perhaps the CDC does. But I, I know there's been a lot of criticism of both the FDA and the CDC around pediatric, the 5 to 11-year-olds, and sort of the time it's taken for us to get the vaccine developed for, uh, for young people. Uh, What's your sense about uh, uh, upcoming review that uh, uh, Pfizer has put uh, their information in front of the FDA and the CDC around young people? But uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics has come out and criticized the length of delay here. What what do you make of all of that and what's your sense about the timing for the 5 to 11 and then certainly the, the younger ones after that?
3: Well, look, I don't I don't think this has been significantly delayed. Um, you know, it's it's maybe a month past where we thought we might have been 3 or 4 months ago because the agency, the FDA asked for some additional data, they asked for the trials um, in the kids ages 5 to 11 to be a little bit longer, a little bit larger, but um, so so we're not talking about a significant amount of time now. Obviously in a setting of a pandemic, any amount of time is significant, but I think if the if the trade-off for that is that you're going to have a bigger data set, a better data set on which to base a decision try to give the public better information, you know, the public health can be benefited in the end because you're going to be able to allow people to have more confidence about using the vaccine and maybe get more uptake. So this is where, you know, you have to engage in that careful balancing and you have to be very sort of prescriptive about what you're doing and why and what you think the the trade-offs are. And I think the FDA has been um, careful in doing that balancing. I think the FDA is oftentimes more deliberate and transparent about you know what it's doing what it thinks the trade offs are what it thinks the public health benefits are and it's kind of getting back to the last discussion about you know what are we trying to achieve in terms of vaccination rates and what are the policies to mm-hmm. get us there um, i think we've been fairly deliberate about it here the agency is going to be meeting on october 26th to discuss mm-hmm. the pfizer vaccine and ki- the company i'm on the board of and kids ages 5 to 11 assuming Meeting has a positive outcome. The agency authorizes the vaccine based on the data sets that's available. The CDC would be prepared to meet very soon after that, you know, almost immediately after that, as they've been doing, and make a recommendation. So this vaccine, you know, I think is on course to be available by Halloween or thereabouts, if everything goes well, and ultimately these two agencies feel that the Pfizer data package supports its safe use.
1: Tell me what your sense is on the horizon. You were very positive about the Merck. Drug, but what else do you see the public should be keeping its eyes on in terms of the development that's going on with antivirals or other uh, 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 other improvements in the science that have happened because of the mRNA platform? And what do you see out there that animates your uh, thinking?
3: Yeah. Well, look, we have we have a much better toolbox now than we did when we started. Uh, certainly, I mean, we have a, a safe and effective vaccines, multiple vaccines. We have point of care tests that can be used at home, FDA has undergone sort of a a dramatic cultural shift in terms of making tests available in the home for the diagnosis of not just an infectious disease, but a reportable pathogen. I mean, three years ago, two years ago, that would have been unheard of, the agency um, allowing those kinds of authorization. Now the agency um, has undergone really a shift in its thinking around this. We have orally available, the Merck drug, an orally available drug that looks very promising. There's two more in advanced development, one by Pfizer, I'm on the board of, one by Roche. Um, all three of those drugs could potentially be available by the end of this year, shortly thereafter. So we have a much different toolbox. I mean, if we, if we go into the future with, you know, effective vaccines, higher vaccination rates, we're, we're chipping away at getting people vaccinated. We're at 70, uh, almost 78% of adults over the age of 18 have now had at least one dose. Most will complete the series. So we're building that wall of immunity through vaccination and also, frankly, through infection. I mean, people are getting infected and they do have a durable immunity, especially if Delta infection, we're gonna have orally available drugs that could treat people who have breakthrough infections or you know the, the small number of people who unfortunately choose not to get vaccinated will have drugs available. The monoclonal antibody drugs are highly effective. Those are being formulated in subcutaneous delivery. So you can, you can deliver it in the doctor's office just with a simple injection. And in the advent of these, um, these point of care and home diagnostic tests, it's gonna make testing much more accessible you know, eventually supply will catch up to demand, it's getting there and hopefully the costs come down. This is a much better toolbox and this, it will allow us to turn this into a more manageable pathogen as we sort of transition from the pandemic phase of this virus to a more endemic phase where this just becomes a persistent menace that we're gonna to have to learn how to grapple with.
2: Well, that is a positive note to end on. And we've been speaking today with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner and the author of Uncontrolled Spread, why COVID-19 crushed us, and how we can defeat the next pandemic. Learn more about his latest work and access his book by going to uncontrolledspread.com, follow his policy work at the American Enterprise Institute, or follow him on Twitter at Scott Gottlieb, MD. Dr. Gottlieb, we wanna thank you for your analysis on our pandemic response, for illuminating ways that we can strengthen the nation's public health infrastructure to better meet the next challenge, and for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week?
4: Studies on whether ivermectin is beneficial in treating COVID-19 patients haven't been conclusive, and health officials have warned people not to self-medicate. But multiple large trials are continuing to assess the antiparasitic drug. The Food and Drug Administration has not approved the use of ivermectin to treat or prevent COVID-19. The drug is approved for human use only to treat some conditions caused by parasites, including head lice. Although the National Institutes of Health counts over 70 studies evaluating the safety and effectiveness of ivermectin to treat or prevent COVID-19 in humans, the FDA says the currently available data don't show it's effective against the disease and that using it for this purpose in humans or animals can be dangerous. In fact, the FDA said the agency has received multiple reports of people needing medical attention after ingesting ivermectin intended for livestock which comes in doses that can be toxic for humans. Animal ivermectin, which is different from the one intended for people, helps prevent heartworm disease and other parasites in different animal species. One expert told us if people are interested in ivermectin and whether there is a benefit for COVID-19 treatment, they should participate in a clinical trial. Preliminary results from one trial in Brazil found no indication of a benefit in using ivermectin among high-risk, non-hospitalized patients, but two large clinical trials are still being conducted in the United States. One, a randomized controlled trial led by the University of Minnesota Medical School, is recruiting volunteers. Researchers expect to have preliminary results by December. A second large study funded by the National Institutes of Health and led by the Duke Clinical Research Institute is also enrolling participants. Both studies involve non-hospitalized patients and they are also evaluating other medications. Researchers in the United Kingdom are also studying ivermectin in a large trial that is analyzing possible COVID-19 treatments. The results of these trials will provide more definitive data on the drug. And that's my fact check for this week.
1: Each week... Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. One in five Americans will suffer a diagnosable mental health condition in a given year and most often don't seek treatment. For those with serious mental health conditions, the consequences can be devastating. Hospitalizations, loss of job or home, or even early death. Seeing a rise in mobile apps aimed at behavioral health entering the marketplace, University of Washington researcher Drar Ben-Zev thought a comparative effective analysis study would be a good idea.
5: My team and I conducted a three-year comparative effectiveness trial uh, with the objective of having a, a head-to-head comparison between a mobile health intervention for people with serious mental illness called FOCUS and a more traditional clinic-based group intervention called RAP, or Wellness Recovery Action Planning. So it's conducted at a clinic setting, people with similar diagnoses. So the study really gets at some of the core differences between mobile health and clinic-based care. Is there something about the mobile health approach that would make it more accessible or less accessible? Would people find it less engaging over time?
1: More than 90% of the mobile app group engaged in the online program, which was a series of text messages offering coping strategies and self-monitoring of symptoms, along with weekly call-ins with a behavioral health clinician. The
5: second thing we wanted to see is after people complete care, what are their subjective ratings of their experience in treatment? Are they satisfied with both interventions? Are there differences in their levels of satisfaction? And probably the most important piece of the study are the clinical outcomes. So we measure to see whether involvement in both interventions for a 12-week period, would that create some sort of difference in psychiatric symptom severity and quality of life. And 90% of the individuals who were randomized into the mobile health arm actually went on to meet a mobile health specialist who described the app to them and trained them how to use it and used the intervention app that's assigned to them at least once. Whereas in the clinic-based arm, we saw that only 58% of the participants assigned to that clinic-based intervention ever made it in for a single session.
1: Both groups of patients, saw roughly equal results from their completed treatment, but the mobile group was more likely to engage in therapy. Ben Zev says this suggests that mobile therapies may provide a useful tool for clinicians having trouble getting those with serious mental health issues to engage with the clinical interventions.
5: The group dynamics, the fact that there's a sense of shared experience and perhaps even normalization of some of the experience, that on its own is quite potent for people, right? And so we know that the very existence of a group can be quite helpful. But for others, the interaction is anxiety-provoking. Just making it to the clinic to engage in that interaction is logistically complex. And When it comes to the clinical outcomes, in both intervention arms, people improved both in terms of reduction in their symptoms and the distress associated with symptoms and improvements in their recovery.
1: The results of this study were published in the Journal of Psychiatric Services, a targeted mobile app aimed at facilitating access to clinical care for those experiencing serious mental illness symptoms, proving equally effective in managing the condition improving access to intervention for behavioral health needs. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli.
0: And I'm Margaret Plinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU, at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com. Or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.